This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. I've got a secret. Come closer and I'll whisper it to you. I find Brexit a bit boring. Now, professionally, I'm obviously gripped by every twist and U-turn, but I can understand why some people might not be. However, this is the week when Theresa May triggers the infamous Article 50 and all hell breaks loose. So, to make sure you can impress your friends at parties with knowledge of customs unions, passporting rights and grandfathering regulations, this week we bring you the Bluffer's Guide to Brexit. I'm joined by Oliver Wright and Henry Zeffman, the brains behind the Times Brexit briefing. Sign up at thetimes.co.uk. Plus, Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government. Welcome to... To you all. Uh, now, we were asking for uh, Red Box listeners and readers to send in some questions, which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, but we'll start with an obvious one. Uh, Ollie, what is going on this week? Well, uh, it's going to be an enormous week. On Wednesday, Theresa May is finally, after much anticipation, going to trigger Article 50. Um, what that actually means is that someone probably Sir Tim Barrow, will walk up the corridor in the EU headquarters in Brussels and hand a letter over to Donald Tusk, who is president of the Council of the EU, and this will be a letter from Theresa May, which she will sign at some point, um, saying, we're off. Now, what we don't know quite is how long this letter needs to be. I mean, she could do it in a line. We think it's more likely to be six or seven pages. Whether she's going to tell us anything new in that, we don't know. Um, But we'll be pouring over all the details when they come. Um, But that's not the only thing happening this week. On Thursday, the government is also going to publish what's known as a white paper, which is effectively its plan for what Britain is going to do post-EU. Now, this is a huge bill called the Great Repeal Bill at the moment, although that may change, which is effectively repealing the European Communities Act and enshrining some of the things that need to be put into UK law as part of the Brexit process. And we've already been seeing a preempting of that and talk of 19,000 rules and regulations which have to be rolled into UK law. I mean, there's one estimate of 52,000 oh, well, um, this week, so, <laughs> um, which I think illustrates the point that nobody really knows. Um, government want this legislation to be as clear and as simple as possible. Uh, they might succeed in doing that in the white paper. They certainly won't succeed in doing that when the thing enters Parliament and MPs get their hands on this. This is a gigantuan piece of legislation uh, and it's like to tie up Parliament for many, many months, if not years ahead. Jill, you spend your whole time looking at government and Whitehall 
and how it's dealing with the job it's been set to do. How, as we are on the cliff edge before we we leap into the unknown and the negotiations, how ready do you think Whitehall is? Well, it's a lot readier than it would have been if uh, if we don't what David Cameron initially threatened to do, which was trigger Article 50 the day after the referendum. So we have had nine months to start sort of lining our Brexit ducks up and getting them into a row. Um, as Ollie just said, there is this massive legislative task, um, but actually what Whitehall's about to be faced with is three simultaneous uh, think jobs it has to get done with a hard deadline. We talk about hard Brexit, but what there does appear to be is a hard deadline unless the others concede, and that's doing this massive legislative task. So not just the Great Repeal Bill, we're also told there'll be a very substantial number of other primary uh, legislation to introduce new regimes where we're changing policy. Remember the Great Repeal Bill does the really quite fundamentally dull act of translating <laughs> EU law into UK law without changing it with then, then things that we're going to have to have to change. At the same time, they have to support this process of negotiations. At the same time, they also have to get the administrative systems ready. So, for example, there's this question of regularising the situation of EU nationals if we decide to do that by uh, by the deadline. Um, uh, some people have estimated that current rates of processing, if they all applied for permanent residence, that could take 140 years. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, so, so they know how big the task is, whether or not they're I think up that's to probably it, still. That? I think that's probably what the trade still calls emergent, um, <laughs> because I think they've got a much better grip uh, on what the size of the task is than they would have had uh, back in uh, back in June, because as we were famously told there was no contingency planning for this. Uh, I think there will be lots and lots of things that sort of pop out of nowhere and suddenly people realise that a piece of EU law is what I think the technical jargon calls is inoperable. So you have to find some way of amending it, uh, that things emerge in the negotiations that mean we need to amend the law we're just introducing. That's one reason why the government, David Lindington, said the government needs the power to tweak uh, with these Henry VIII powers, which are likely to be a very big battleground with Parliament. Anyway, the odd thing about the Great Repeal Bill is actually it's not repealing, is it? It's loading a whole load of EU law onto the British statute book. Yeah, it's it's almost as if uh, Theresa May came up with the catchy name to please uh, the delegates at her first oh, Conservative Party conference as leader. Uh, and I wouldn't uh, be surprised if it has a, a different name when it uh, makes it, uh, well, first in its embryonic form in the White Paper this week and then, and then uh, before Parliament and eventually... Uh, into law. Uh, I mean, one of one of the things that's really fascinating about the Great Repeal Bill is it is, it is as Jill says, fundamentally a very dull act. It is uh, transferring what uh, is jargonistically occasionally called the acquis. Ah, well, you, uh, you, that's that's one I can tick off my jargon buster immediately. Oh, well, there go on, you then. go. Sorry, I just I, I I've I've been covering Brexit so long now. I'm just naturally <laughs> in the business of. of of busting jargon, and it's made you. It may, it's made you a much more interesting conversation <laughs> list as well, Henry. So, go on then. What is it? Uh, so, the Aki communautaire is uh, the sort of cumulative weight of European directives, legislation, and judgments from the European Court of Justice, which underpins uh, how the European Union and the markets within operate. Uh, the Great Repeal Bill is basically about introducing regulatory certainty. Uh, so transferring it all across, um, as Jill says, it's basically a big copy and paste act, except, uh, you know, if you read the directives, they understandably, given they were written for the European Union, make reference to European institutions like the powers of the European Council or the powers of a certain agency like the European uh, Research Council. And that means that 
the Great Repeal Bill is more political than it seems at the margins because someone somewhere, be it a civil servant or, in more important cases, a minister, is going to have to make a decision about who is going to be responsible for exercising those functions or for supervising that regulation after Brexit. Now, that sounds very dull, but it actually, for Whitehall at least, is a really interesting task because it, it is basically the question of we're, we're, we're regaining these powers from Brussels, who in Britain is going to exercise them? Um, you did blunder into another one then, the European <laughs> Courts of Justice. What, what, this keeps being brought up as a, as a thing. Why is it significant? Uh, well, it's significant uh, in many respects because Theresa May decided to make it very significant. Again, at October's Tory party conference, she said, no more laws from Luxembourg. Uh, now, she wasn't referring to, to, to the, the small Luxembourg parliament that Jean-Claude Juncker dominated for, for a couple of decades. Uh, she was referring to the European Court of Justice, uh, which is uh, the ultimate uh, court for European Union law, uh, is based in Luxembourg. And, you know, in the popular imagination and, you know, also with an element of truth about it, uh, has uh, supervened on British law uh, during our membership. Um, Theresa May has said that there will be no more uh, regulations from the European Court of Justice that will have precedence in Britain. That's actually really important. That, if en that, that arguably that that red line that she set last October has led to, and I'm about to blunder into another jargon <laughs> term here. Gosh, this isn't great. Uh, is it, it, arguably what what led to her decision to to withdraw us from the single market. Right. Well, that is that was number one on the Ollie. Do you want to pick up because I feel like <laughs> Henry's going to faint roll, if Henry. he uh, um, the single market. What's the single market? So the single market in is... In a sentence. In a sentence. Down the pub. <laughs> the single market is effectively a set of regulations that allow the free movement of people, goods, labour and capital around the European Union. What does that mean to you and me? It means that if you make a chocolate bar in Birmingham, you have a certain set of regulations that apply not just in Birmingham, but in Luxembourg, in Berlin, in Paris, in Frankfurt. And chocolate bars are made under the same regulations anywhere in the European Union. So that chocolate bar can be sold anywhere in the European Union without any further checks. So you've got free movement of goods. Then a pole could go and work in that factory in Birmingham, making that chocolate bar, free movement of people. The chocolate bar factory could be financed by a Latvian, so that's free movement of capital. Now, the problem is, Britain says it's fine with free of those freedoms, but we don't want freedom of labour. We want to control our borders. The rest of the EU are saying, well, these four freedoms are indivisible, so if you want to be part of the single market, you've got to have freedom of movement of people. Um, that's the that's the sticking point. That's the problem. That's why you're going to be hearing so much more about it in the coming weeks and months ahead. I think describing Brexit using chocolate is a is a <laughs> is definitely the way it's forward. Quite, it's quite an interesting one that Ollie's lit on there because one of my colleagues was reminding me that chocolate and the UK uh, UK's ability to market our sort of chocolate on the continent was subject to quite fierce debates back in the early two thousands, and we have to call our chocolate apparently because it has too much vegetable fat, family milk chocolate. Yeah. On the and they didn't want to allow us to call it yeah. chocolate at yeah, all in that row. And that was um, yeah. that was the, one of the sort of bendy banana rows. Um, so, so, yeah, regulations do affect people in, in real life as well as um, well as politics. Jill, do you want to have a go at the customs union? Uh, so the customs union is, uh, uh, is not the same as the single market. Um, the big country everybody cites as being a member of the customs union but not in the single market is Turkey. And that basically means that you apply the EU's common external tariff 
so you can then, because you have that outside, you can then trade without sort of customs checks with the rest of the EU. So you're part of the customs union. Remember, that's where this all started off as a customs union in the first place. Why does that matter? Why have we said we also want to withdraw from the customs union? Because you remember the customs union, you basically can't run your own free trade policy. Uh, if we had decided to stay in the customs union, there would be no point in having a department for international trade because we would be bound by the agreements that the EU makes. And in practical terms, it means all chocolate bars being checked as they come in and out of the country? Well, we've been told that uh, that we want this thing called frictionless trade uh, with the EU, which means we basically are hoping uh, that there is a digital solution, which means that all the sort of compliance checks can be done very, very light-touch way and before your chocolate bar ever reaches the border. Because obviously there are real problems if you start, and this is some of the things that the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, was saying earlier in the week. If you start really requiring physical checks, that's when you start seeing these lineups at Dover and whatever. And quite interesting, uh, uh, we apply those sorts of checks now to non-EU trade. Uh, big containers can come in having sort of complied in advance. So, uh, so it'd be interesting to see whether the system's up for it. Customs is introducing a new system to deal with checks. It was designed to deal just with non-EU transactions. Uh, its capacity has to go up, uh, I think, by about 15 times to cope with the number of intra-EU transactions that we now see, so transactions between the EU and the UK. That's due to go live end of next year. And this sounds like a massive IT project for the government. It sounds like a massive IT project for the government. And their track record on this is... I'm saying nothing. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Abysmal. Um, right, let's um, let's get. That's enough jargon for now. Although I imagine we'll blunder into some more. Let's get into some questions in sort of no particular order. Hugo emails in and said, "Should the exit bill only be paid by the UK if it's based on audited accounts?" I understand the EU accounts have not been audited for some years. So for the first six months. Uh, of once the Article 50 is triggered. Um, all the talk is going to be about the divorce bill and how much we have to pay for leaving the EU. Does it make any difference that the accounts haven't been audited, Ollie? Uh, that sounds like sort of a pseudonym for David Davis, trying to think, <laughs> of a, think of a cunning way out. No, I think. I mean, you know, frankly, there are government departments in this country who haven't had their accounts audited for quite a long time, so... Um, I think they've had them audited, but they've had them qualified to Sorry, be fair I've, to the I've, National Audit Office. I, so. I apologize. Yes, they, they have been audited, and <laughs> after the audit, they've concluded they can't be signed off. Yeah, yeah. so pot, kettle, black. Um, I think one thing that we may see happening here, this has, been, this has been used as a huge issue, the bill, how much we're going to have to pay, and it is in the interests of both sides, both the EU and the UK, to try and come up with a mechanism to resolve this and to try and get the politics out of it. I think one thing you may see is that early on in the talks, Barnier and Davis get together and they create a mechanism by which a figure will be come to. And then secondly to that, they will then have an adjudication mechanism and it has to be legal. And then hopefully they can then park this to officials somewhere to come up to a figure that will then be adjudicated upon and both sides will sign up to the figure that's eventually arrived at with sort of a South African judge, maybe, and a, a judge from somewhere else deciding what the liabilities should be, and that gets them both off the hook politically. If they can't do that, we're in really, really, really serious trouble. Because then it becomes, I want 60, well, you can't have 60, well, you can have 10. Well, we'll save 50, and then it becomes a horrible sort exactly. of... Exactly. It can't, it can't be a sort of haggle in a bazaar. There has to be a better way of doing it. 
it is worth noting, though, I mean, even though uh, there is an increasingly vocal movement within the Conservative Party uh, and, and beyond to suggest that uh, Theresa May's uh, bad deal, which would be worse than a no deal, is any, is any deal where, where the UK has to pay a large sum of money to the EU. Uh, the idea was uh, of a divorce bill was conspicuous by its absence from Theresa May's uh, Lancaster House speech, uh, and the white paper that followed. Uh, she talked about no more vast payments to the EU's annual budget. Well, that's one thing, and I don't think anyone is talking about vast payments to the EU's annual budget, because she totally... Uh, in fact, she has never addressed the question directly of whether uh, the UK would essentially be willing to uh, buy the terms of a, of a deal that it would like with a large upfront payment. So, so we've had language, haven't we, from Philip Hammond, that the UK is a country that that honours its commitments. And some of the things that are in play on this are, you know, when the EU agreed its budget for the sort of seven-year budget period that it did, uh, there's quite a lot of back-end loaded money that's still to come through. Will we make that good? What will happen about the uh, UK ex-commission officials who are owed pensions in the future? Because uh, just like the UK civil service, the EU doesn't have a funded pension scheme. It has a pay-as-you-go pension scheme, which means that basically they haven't sort of, you know, got a nice fund to cover that. So will we bear future contributions? Will we do it for the proportion of people that were Brits? Or would we do it for our budgetary share of uh, of the total budget, fewer Brits than our sort of proportional budgetary share in the commissions, that makes a bit of a difference. So, so those are sort of issues that are in play and there's some other even more complicated stuff about future contingent liabilities. So these are a bits of apples and pears-ish, actually. They're not sort of all things that need to be paid at once. They might be sort of recognition of future obligations, which is another possible, possible approach. OK, let's move on to um, the next one. Uh, this is on Twitter from Silky Silky, I think. Uh, who is mainly responsible for allowing such a convoluted system to evolve? Henry, why is, why is it so complicated, this leaving business? Um, well, I'll I, I just say I certainly hope Silky Silky isn't a, a, a pseudonym for David Davis. <laughs> <laughs> um, got the double, double initials there. <laughs> Gosh, can't get that thought out of my mind now. Um, well, why, no. why is it why is it so complicated to leave? Uh, I mean, many reasons. The the, the first is that uh, British governance is in well, I was about to say inextricably. We're about to learn whether it is inextricable, <laughs> but it is it is uh, completely and in all sorts of complex ways interwoven uh, with Whitehall governance, with with British governance, with devolved uh, governance. You know, post post uh, the Blair governments. Um, but the other reason probably is that the EU never anticipated Article 50 being triggered. I mean, John Kerr, Lord Kerr, uh, who wrote it, uh, former head of the Foreign Office, has said he, he didn't properly consider uh, how it would work if a country triggered it. It was, it was more thought that it might be needed uh, for the EU to eject a member state rather than a member state to, to sort of voluntarily and peacefully and with apparent goodwill secede which is what we're doing so i mean that's certainly part of it i mean one of the one of the things that we're not quite sure of uh, and there's a possibility of a court case on this is whether article 50 is irrevocable uh, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, article 50 doesn't say uh, another thing that we're not quite sure of and 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 this is going to get very touchy quite early on in the negotiation is whether as michel barnier and the european commission insist Britain will have to first agree the terms of exit and then, and only once that is agreed, 
be allowed to discuss the possibility of a comprehensive future free trade deal. And the reason, again, why that's complicated is because Article 50 can be arguably read both ways. It talks about uh, discussing the terms of exit, but, you know, with due consideration to the future arrangements. Well, what are the future arrangements? Are they just money or is it also trade? It's not totally clear. Excellent. Your, your ability to explain how things aren't... You're, you're very clear to explain how things just aren't clear. Um, Jill, this one from Preben Skak Jensen. It's about David Davis, so we can assume it's probably not him. It says, David Davis et al. have apparently not modelled hard Brexit. Why not? Has any independent body done so? And what are the numbers? How bad does hard Brexit look? Um, I think David Davis has said that they that they didn't do this, and partly, uh, partly when he was giving evidence... Before the exiting the EU committee, uh, he was pointing to the fact that uh, that economic forecasters hadn't necessarily had a great track record um, as part of his reason for doing it. I don't know. I think it's very interesting to know what information ministers had before them when they made some of the decisions. So I think, as Henry was saying, you could regard the combination of the ECJ decision, we don't want ECJ jurisdiction, that's unacceptable, and we have to end freedom of movement, saying, OK, that means we're out of the single market. I think it's quite interesting... Um, to what extent I thought you might see this in the Brexit white paper, whether ministers had had any analysis in front of them of the comparison between staying in the customs union and leaving the customs union, which doesn't have the same same sort of baggage attached in terms of what you have to sign up for. That seemed to me to be something where, if I'd been a cabinet minister, she said, uh, rather than sort of sitting in the Institute for Government, I think I would have been quite interested to see an assessment of the relative merits. What we do have uh, is the Treasury's publication from last summer, uh, its analysis of the costs of doing that. That's the thing on the table, I suppose, as the last official look at this, though obviously was tied up and regarded as part of uh, part of what I'm sure David Davis would term project fear. It's always quite difficult to work out how things do. I think when you look at things, uh, I think the one thing most people would agree with was that if you introduce impediments to trade and if you introduce tariffs and non-tariff barriers. That's the other really important part of this, because except on agricultural goods, EU tariffs are generally relatively low. But if you introduce that, you're likely, other things being equal, great economic term, to have less trade. And that is likely, at least in the short term, to make you worse off. Um, whether you need much more analysis than that or quite what those magnitudes are, it's quite difficult to tell. Over time, then, we see ministers hoping that they're going to conclude a whole raft of new free trade agreements which should have some offsetting effect, quite how quickly with whom and quite how much those might substitute for any losses on intra-EU trade uh, is uh, is difficult to forecast. One of the interesting points, and I don't know to what extent the government has looked at this, is if we're not part of the customs union, what impact will that have on future investment into the UK? Mm-hmm. Now, Say you've got a company like Toyota who've got a plant here. Now, I don't think if we end up with a hard Brexit, Toyota is immediately going to up sticks and leave because they've got millions, if not small billions worth of plant equipment, investment, infrastructure in place already. But what happens in five years down the line when they need to renew that equipment and that's an investment that they need to put in? It's at that stage that those companies say, are we in the right location 
or given that we've got to renew this equipment anywhere, is there a better place for us to be? So what you will likely see if we have a so-called hard Brexit is a sort of slow move of investment out of the UK unless something is put in its place. Jill, I was just going to, before we move on, I was just going to pick you up on non-tariff barriers. How do you explain that? Okay, so there are two sorts of things. So what uh, what's quite interesting, the EU was always... Oh, you know, established around free trade. But actually what the single market did, and the reason why Mrs Thatcher was such an advocate of this in the first place, was remove all the sort of niggly country-by-country rules that stop people trading. So when I was a uh, very young Treasury official, there used to be this thing, and this, this dates it enormously, about video recorders and the French requiring them all to be routed through some sort of very obscure customs post. There was only one place you could import it through. So people introduced all these sorts of hidden barriers to trade. So the single market has been an attempt actually pushed very hard by the British from the start to try and remove those non-tariff barriers. It's been, you know, so it's not about it's, money, it's about making life difficult to it's try about and protect ma- It's about putting in place natural... So one of the things that's been putting in place these sort of regulatory barriers, so one of the things that really matters, and we have, hear a lot about this, so one of the things David Davis has said is, well, OK, this is easy. This isn't a free trade agreement like a free trade agreement with Canada or with Singapore where we've got to look at your standards and our standards and say, well, actually, they're different. How do we, you know, what are we prepared to recognise of yours uh, compared to ours? Because we're all starting off from the same point, the famous Aki communautaire, to quote Henry. Um, the problem is that, the various problems, one of which is if we repatriate some of these things and say, well, instead of this European agency checking that Brits comply, it's going to be this British agency does the EU accept them? Do they say, well, that's OK, we're perfectly confident in those people? People have been raising issues about things like nuclear safety. Do they accept our nuclear regulators as good as you know the European one? Uh, so that's one issue. Over time, and we saw this, I think, today with Ian Duncan Smith saying, let's, let's have a bonfire of EU regulation. Well, if we're bonfiring EU regulations... What's going to happen is the EU says, well, your standards are lower than ours, so actually we're not happy to trade with you because you're gaining a competitive advantage on us by not adhering to those single market regulations. So if you want what's called a deep free trade agreement, then you tend to have to have quite a fair degree of regulatory harmonisation. And and then it begs the question, well, what was the point of leaving if everybody's got to sign up to the same rules anyway and we have no say over them? But that's, oh. that's, that's, that's the risk of rerunning last year's debate. <laughs> Sounding like a Ramona. <laughs> Well, according to an iTunes review, this is Fox News for Ramonas. So um, uh, let's. Um, uh, you volunteered yourself another question there, then, Ollie. Um, uh, we've had a couple on this. John Taylor said, "Is a united Ireland an unforeseen and unintended consequence of the Brexit referendum?" And Della Mirandola said, "Why do the Brexiteers not bother to have a plan for the Northern Ireland border?" Yeah, Northern Ireland, um, unlike Scotland, is so far um, an issue that has yet to really come to the sort of wider public consciousness, but I think that is changing. I mean, we had a story this morning saying that the government have admitted for the first time that Northern Ireland, if it wanted to, could rejoin with the Republic as a united island and would automatically become a member of the EU. Unlike Scotland, they wouldn't have to reapply to become a member. They would just automatically be subsumed within within the EU. Now, if you look at the polls at the moment, there is clearly not a majority in favour of that happening. But depending on the kind of deal 
that we get, the kind of relationship over the border between the North and the South that emerges, whether that is frictionless or whether you begin to see customs checkpoints and disruptions to trade between the North and the South, you could see potentially opinion changing. You could also see opinion changing if companies in the North decide that actually they'd rather be part of the EU and move to the South. Job losses, that's the kind of stuff that actually has a real life impact. It's not just politicians in Westminster talking that, about it. That's the sort it. of thing that can change opinion. Change opinion profoundly. Um, and you could see, I think it's not unrealistic to think, that three, five years down the line, people in the North might begin to think, well, actually, are we not better off as part of the Republic? So, you know, it is not just the Union in terms of England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland that are at FET. It could be between Northern Ireland and England and Wales as well. As well. One interesting quirk on the Ireland issue. Uh, Theresa May is sort of famous for uh, now for having had a sort of submarine approach to the EU referendum campaign. Her main Brexit speech uh, said, well, the EU annoys me for all these reasons, but I'm nevertheless voting Remain. But she also made another speech, uh, which wasn't as widely covered, I think three or four days before the referendum, in Northern Ireland, where she said... You've got to vote Remain because there are two issues about the border which I can't see a solution to after Brexit. One was people, the other was customs. Theresa May knows that this is an intractable and difficult problem. Uh, she, I mean, perhaps in a nod to that, she put her protégé James Brokenshire in place as Northern Ireland secretary, you know, I mean, only three weeks after she made that speech saying the Northern Irish border, you know, we could see a return to a hard border after Brexit. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not... I'm, I'm, basically saying the opposite of Theresa May might have a rabbit to pull out of her hat here. She 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 said just a few days before the referendum that she didn't think there was a solution to this. Uh, I mean, the one positive thing on this, though, is I think this is an area, it's obviously an area of deep concern to Ireland, who are in the 27 rather than with us. So there is, uh, there is a sort of, you know, advocate for a solution inside the EU 27. They've said that this is obviously matters enormously to them. The other thing is that if you look at the things that Michel Barnier said were his priorities to sort out, there was the sort of rights of, uh, rights of the EU citizens who are living in, in other countries, both the EU nationals here and the Brits overseas. Um, there's the money, but there was also Ireland was very high on his list and you know very conscious of the need to preserve the gains since the Good Friday Agreement. So, so I mean, this does seem to be an area where at least, you know, there is sort of goodwill that a solution needs to be found. Uh, the problem the... with the Brexit white paper is it just sort of assumed a solution would be found without giving us any more detail of what that really might look like. There's total agreement on the need to find a solution, but nobody knows what that might be. No, it's quite interesting. And one of the things that uh, we had an event at the Institute for Government in, I think, September, and Mark... Uh, Former Mark Harper, I think, who was former immigration minister, said that he thought the issue was goods, not people, because actually we already have the common travel area, so we already sort of, you know, non-EU citizens can travel across the uh, across the the border. Um, and he thought that actually your immigration controls post Brexit would all be through employers, landlords, and things like that. So actually, he thought it was a goods issue, not a people issue. Okay, let's take a, a couple more questions. Uh, St George of EU. Uh, on Twitter, said, what is the EU's ideal scenario for these negotiations and their outcomes? What's their win? Is it is it punishing us or is it or is it keeping Ooh. Britain happy and having us having us? Well, I mean, to, to cop happy. out of that answer, there are twenty seven EU countries, and trying to create a unified line is perhaps you know is 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 a bit simplistic. Um, broadly, what would they like? Um, 
They want a deal with the UK that doesn't provide sucker to right-wing parties in the continent to say, actually, you can get this wonderful trade agreement with the EU, but not be subject to any of the sort of the political side of it, which is, you know, what a lot of, of, of right-wing parties in other EU countries are looking at. So they need a deal that illustrates clearly that leaving the EU is not to the advantage of other countries. That's the first thing they want. Secondly, you know, there is an economic interest from their point of view as well. You know, Britain is a big country. They want to remain on good economic and political terms with Britain. They want cooperation in areas like um, home affairs, foreign policy, where Britain has always played an outsized role compared to other countries. So there's a sort of dichotomy here between wanting to not punish Britain, but certainly to set an example, but at the same time, not damage their own economies, not damage the project. And these tensions we're going to see play out time and time again as the two-year process goes on. And I'm not sure, sitting here now, how they resolve themselves quite. I was struck, I was speaking to an EU diplomat uh, this week who they thought that the results that we saw in the Netherlands and the possibility that Le Pen doesn't win in France might be a sign that this rise of populism, which they feel like they've got to face down, has you know has peaked. And so they could be slightly more relaxed about letting Britain go because they didn't feel that any other... And so actually the, the threat of other countries going, if that subsides a bit, then they might be more predisposed. But also there was a... Um, contrast drawn between what national leaders of individual countries might want to do and have a good relation with Britain and the power brokers in Brussels who want to totally project, protect that project and um, and they're probably more enthusiastic about punishing us. Looking at it from Europe, I mean, the first thing they do is they'd rather not have to be having to do this because yes. they've got lots of other European business that actually they regard as more important and having to get on with. So this is, this is quite a big, apart from being generally most countries quite upset that we've chosen to leave and feeling uh, potentially a bit sort of spurned by that. I think Ollie's right. That, you know, It's quite interesting. We've got this debate about exact same benefits. I think the one thing that's very difficult for the EU to concede is anything that can be presented as we get exactly the same benefits as we have now, but without what they would say is this is a two-way project. You get the benefits, but you also take some of the responsibilities. The idea the UK gets all the benefits and none of the responsibilities, I think, would be extremely unattractive to sell but i think basically they'd probably rather not be having to having to spend two years and devote time and effort to dealing with uh dealing with this and uh, see how that how that plays out henry a uh, question from philip coghill if negotiating isn't finished after two years what are the chances of all 27 eu states agreeing to an extension i think it depends where the negotiations are at that point i mean if they're mired in acrimony uh, and they're not finished because nobody can see a way of getting past some really fundamental questions such as the size of the divorce bill or, you know, the extent to which uh, Britain agrees to maintain regulatory harmony with the EU for trade. Uh, then I think they will just call it off and say to Britain, well, ultimately, a disorderly Brexit is bad for both of us, but it's worse for you. Uh, but I think, you know, it is a possibility that uh, they're still in talks after two years, but not not particularly acrimoniously, they just need a little bit more time. And I think in, in those circumstances, you'd certainly be likely to see an extension. I think it's more of a risk in Britain. Uh, you know, there there is certainly a weight of public opinion uh, that is already confused by the fact that we're still in the European Union, let alone that we aren't triggering Article 50 until this week. And I think it's a, more of a tough sell uh, for Britain, those who fear Brexit backsliding, so-called, 
uh, if Theresa May were to turn around and say, look, I need a little bit more time to sort out this niggly regulation on aviation. I would make one rash prediction. Wow. If, Nobody's done one of those on this podcast. No, no. <laughs> but if a deal is done, it will be done after midnight and before 7am. It will be done in the hours of darkness, <laughs> like all other EU deals. I think that's probably a safe prediction to make. Right, um, uh, very quickly, uh, Ariane Moshiri asks, how far down the pecking order in Brexit talks will be the concern for EU pet passports? Uh, it's very interesting. So we did a word search on the Brexit white paper. Pet passports not mentioned. It's bad news. Um, interestingly, this has had coverage in the New York Times when we uh, when we were looking at this because having found nothing in the Brexit white paper. So it looks as that so probably EU pet passports will all be invalidated. Um, but who knows? Uh, but the relatively good news is that there is a thing that you can apply for to be a listed non-EU country if you can convince the EU authorities, and we should be able to, that you are rabies-free or rabies-controlled, and then basically you have a sort of compliance regime that looks not that different from EU passports. But this is probably the sort of issue that you hope might be dealt with, but actually might be a loose end, uh, and so that could be bad news for some pets. But there's always the very helpful DEFRA pet helpline that <laughs> uh, always used to conjure up wonderful images of Gromit answering the phone <laughs> room, uh, up there, uh, and that's if it's still going, it used to be a very useful source of advice. Well, I, I know there are lots of people who listen to the podcast while walking their dogs. Cause... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So get in touch and tell us. So hopefully that's um, set uh, those minds at rest. Um, uh, just very quickly, what's, what's the thing that we can use down the pub to make it sound like we know what we're talking about? Who should we be looking at? What are the countries to watch? What's the thing to watch? Let's start with you, Henry. How do you sound clever about Brexit? Uh, I wouldn't hold me responsible for anyone uh, wandering off in search of another conversation with their pint <laughs> after this. But um, I would advise you, if you really want to know how hard a Brexit we're headed for, to watch the agencies. Watch. There are, there are dozens, if not uh, scores, uh, of EU agencies which regulate all manner of different things, be it food, uh, aviation, pets, as Jill was saying. Uh, now, some of them... Uh, you can have associate status of, but that requires saying, all right, we'll we'll basically stick with the same rules that you apply. Uh, that that looks a little bit like uh, having your rules come from Brussels, but without any say over them. But you know, there's all sorts of things that the British Civil Service just hasn't done for decades, and we are going to have to subcontract some of it to Brussels. Ollie. I think you say wistfully, well, the person who's more important than David Davis is Ollie Robbins, of course. Uh, this is the guy who is Permanent Secretary in the Department for Leaving the European Union and is Theresa May's Chief Sherpa. Um, but the point, more broadly, is that it actually will be officials rather than politicians that do the heavy lifting work in the negotiations, and they will be the people that we ought to watch. Well, I was going to counter that with the <laughs> offer of... I think the key player is really Martin Zellmeyer. Who oh, that's is a good. This is Junker's a good. Trump. Chief of staff. So I think I win. I win Brexit top trumps there, assuming I've got the name right. I think your other one to play is to say, well, actually, I know there's a lot of talk about tariffs and uh, and EU and that they're trivial. But did you know that the tariff on way and modified way, if we revert to WTO rules, is six hundred thirty-five percent. That's a top pub fact. <laughs> 6.35% on, uh, on way. Um, the last question that I was going to ask was from Mike P. He said, I'd like to know that it's all been a bad dream. Can you help? I think the side suggests we can't help you, Mike. It is. <laughs> if we know nothing else, we do at least know that it is happening. Keep your questions coming over the next few weeks. You can email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or to reach Ollie and Henry direct, it's brexitbriefing at thetimes.co.uk and you can sign up to their weekly briefing on the Times website. You log in and go to my account and it's uh, under my briefings. Uh, you can also sign up to redbox at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox plus the IFG, the Institute for Government, also do a Brexit briefing. You can find that on their website if you haven't had enough Brexit already. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on your Android device so it will magically appear every week. But for now, from Oliver Wright, Henry Zeffman, Jill Rutter and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs> 